Tony Crowsdale. Tony, this might be the first one we've ever done, just the two of us. Like, we were going to do one and then bullshit up. That's true. (laughs) I know, it's funny. I mean, it is us. This is our thing. Yeah. You know, we're really good friends. Maybe the very first one we did was by ourselves. I forget. But in any case, you sound a little funny. What happened? I was singing in a band for Halloween in a smoky room. There was not wine or perfume to be Cheap smelled. perfume, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a singer in a smoky room. And I actually do have the lyrics in that song tattooed on me. Don't Stop Believing, right there, next to what kind of bird is that? Scarlet Tanager. But, yeah, I was a singer in a... There's a tradition in punk for Halloween to form a band and cover... Like, to do, do like, a whole band. Like, pick a band that you like, cover, you know... Th- a bunch of their songs and maybe even dress like them you know do like stage banner like them you know it's depends some people do some people don't um and we chose to do a band called Nausea from New York City from 1986 to like 1991 they were like kind of a crust punk uh belated happy Halloween everybody and, uh, and belated happy birthday to Billy thank you I've joined Tony on the other side of 40 indeed um Ate a whole lot of my favorite food, pumpkin pie. Um, Ooh, I'm a big fan of pumpkin pie. I've been eating a lot of pumpkin pie because we had like a pumpkin pie left over. Mm. I had made my own pumpkin pie in addition to the couple that we bought, and then someone brought another one. So I guess it was a four pumpkin pie party. Um, and people like pumpkin pie, but apparently not as much as I do because we had a lot of leftover pumpkin pie. I ate lots of it, and I feel bad that I wasn't <laughs> able to attend the party because I was... No, that concert was booked a while ago. We know. Yes. Um, and uh, so I've been eating pumpkin pie for like breakfast and lunch for the past few days. Although Gigi just brought home a bunch of food. One of her coworkers is Hindu, so they had a whole bunch of Diwali um, treats. And so I've been eating like Indian pastries and pumpkin pie as most of my diet the past few days. Nice. I could use to. I might have to switch to nothing but like kale smoothies for a week mm-hmm. to counterbalance all this. But hey, all that aside, um, we'll get the intro stuff out of the way. You know, if you like our podcast and if this is not your first time listening to it, we bet you do. Um, please go on your podcasting platform of choice and tell everybody how much you like it. That helps other people find us and get turned on to urban wildlife topics. Like the parks next door and the friends who love them that we're going to talk about now. Well, real quick on this tip of, of supporting podcasts. So I'm a huge fan of Astronomy Cast. Okay. And they asked the other day, I listened to them yesterday, and they said, could you please stop and like us and write a review of us? On So I immediately did. And I saw that they had something like a thousand reviews or something insane. And I was like... I was like thinking, we have like seven. But I'm saying they have like a thousand reviews, right? And I'm thinking like, so we know we have a few hundred regular listeners, right? And we get about like 150 per episode. Yeah, and then over time they accrue, right? So I'd say regular listeners, like we got a solid 130, 150. Right, and we know that 
over a thousand people have, I mean, a couple thousand total have listened to Oh, us. totally, yeah. Have listened to us. And considering we get like seven reviews, so if they have a thousand reviews, they must have like tens of thousands of listeners. But this is what we're, I'm really confused. This is what I'm interested about. Maybe we can get some feedback. One of the things I love looking at our Twitter, we don't have that many Twitter followers, you know, just shy of 500. But when I look at the people who follow us on Twitter, I mean, I know people that like, I have people that like follow us on Twitter or like someone, I'll see someone on Twitter and like, they'll just be like, I'm a guy. And I think, and, and it'll, there'll be like 4,000 followers. So I don't really understand how this happens, but I'll look at their Twitter followers and, and it's amazing that the people we want to listen to our podcast find us. There's people who follow us on Twitter from all over the world that are like PhD candidates or like the director of something cool or like these people are like the people that are our heroes that we want to hang out with these people. Yeah, yeah. People that we think do the coolest things in the world that like, you know, we're fan boys of like people that we absolutely like think are doing the coolest stuff in the world that like they're following us. So, and, and just, and also just people who aren't necessarily, you know, don't have like official credentials, but are just hobbyists of urban ecology. Like they follow us as well. And so, we're obviously getting out there to people that, you know, are specifically into this. And what I just got to figure out is how do we get out, get our message out to people who so, yeah. are more casual. And I think, to be clear, we're not griping, but we want to know if you have ideas for how you think we can improve the podcast. We'd love to hear them. And you can get back to us by writing us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Um, you can hit us up on Facebook. Pretty easy to find us. There's really only one Urban Wildlife Cast on Facebook. And then you can tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. Um, all these are great ways to get some feedback. We want to hear your feedback. We, uh, you know, this is not some like calcified old medium that that isn't going to change ever. Like we're two guys doing this after work, and we can modify, change, adapt, try new things. So let us give us your feedback. Let us know what you like, what you might think we could improve, and we look forward to hearing that. Um, and Tony. By way of introduction to this episode's topic, where are we sitting? We're sitting in my office. Where's your office, Tony? My office is in the Wissahickon Environmental Center, and that is in in the Wissahickon Valley Park, 1,900 acres of wooded stream corridor in Philadelphia, completely within Philadelphia. Yep. And we're just one, there's almost an identical park in northeast Philly that has up another 1,900 acres of wooded stream corridor, and we have in a system of 10,000 acres of natural lands. And so the 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 theme today um, is the is wild parks in cities, wild parks in urban areas, and maybe a little bit touching on the people who love them. You know, I'm in a weird position here. I actually grew up in a suburb without a nearby wild park. We take school trips to go hiking places. I really wasn't much of an outdoors person until I got like towards the end of college, really. And I'll say I was slow getting turned on to natural history relative to being turned on to like dealing with animals in captivity. Tony, you did a total opposite story. So talk a little bit about how you like interacted with the Penny Pack and Yeah, the other park that is like our sister park, Penny Pack, is um in the grand scheme of things, not very far from my from where I grew up. Um, as a city kid, I mean, it's I couldn't walk to it. Um, I could bike. I could when we moved to you know I could bike from it. I mean, I could walk to it, but that would be your that would be your 
trip. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you walk to it and then you walk back. Like, but I mean, um, it takes an hour to walk somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Philadelphia has, like I mentioned, a, a very large park system. So I would always, I'd, my dad would take me. I say my dad because I grew up in a house where my mom didn't drive, so she was in her forties. So that's very common in Philadelphia. So anyway, so my dad would take me to Pennyback Park. Uh, I met one of my colleagues. He's still there. Um, Pete Kurtz, he told me about uh, Kingfishers. Uh, the story intrigued me. I asked where I could see one. He said, right here in the park. I asked my dad if he'd take me. We did, and we've been going birding ever since. So what was interesting for me, or you just, as you just mentioned, Billy, that you didn't have a close green space, you know, like wild area, you know. And growing up in the city, even though, like, I was someone who particularly enjoyed these green spaces, in a way it took it for granted in the sense that I assumed that the suburbs had had them because I lived in a city. I lived in a row house. I didn't even have a yard, right? Like, in the in the second house, there was no yard. The first house, it was just a concrete slab, you know, you know, that led out to an alley, you know. It was, I had no, I had no, Trees, literally in either of my houses, like in front or you know, I had a small calorie pair in the in front of my second house, but no backyard in that house. Yeah. So I literally had no yard, right? So I go out to the suburbs and I see people who have big yards, and I assume, well, if you have big yards, you must have even bigger parks. And it didn't occur to me until I started getting out there more and being more aware of, you know, the world outside the city that the suburbs, while you have all this fake green space, you have lawns and you have office park grounds with, you know, little arborvitaes and, 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 and Bradford pears. You don't really and have... those ponds with fountains in them. Yeah, and, like, like... No vegetation But you don't have... Yeah. You don't have that many big parks. You have to really... You have to get out far enough away from the inner suburbs to where you have, like, the first state parks, you know, in, in the counties that surround Philadelphia. Yeah. And... But where I work, I'd say half the visitors are from the suburbs. Because Philly has these really big parks, you know, Wissahickon Park is a first class, is a world class park. I mean, it is, you know, has amazing mountain biking, it has, you know, bridle paths, great hiking. You know, it's we're in the, in the Piedmont here, so this it's, the it's the Philly. the creek cuts a um, a gorge through the Piedmont, so and there's ravines from the side from the tributaries. It's pretty cool, and so people come from all over. You know, I'd say definitely this. I'm in the northern portion of the park. You cross the street, the the the, the road on the way, the, the entrance road to my office, my environmental center, is the border of Philadelphia and Montgomery County. And I'd say half of our visitors are probably from Montgomery County. Yeah, and I think it's, it, Ian can't emphasize enough that, that we're on the far end of the, it's a long park, it's like seven miles, right? Right. Um, and so the, the inner end of it, or the downstream end of it where it flows into the Schuylkill, um, that's also the park. And, uh, you know, you can... I, I know this because I do it a few times a year. I mean, you can ride your bike here from West Philly. or I did it today. Streets. There you go. Um, and uh, you see a lot of people coming up. Uh, you know, Philadelphia's invested well in its bike trail, multi-use trail kind of infrastructure. We've got the Schuylkill um, Trail, uh, which is like a, bit, a sort of, certainly up until here, basically an asphalt or concrete multi-use path along the river. And so it's pretty easy to access it that way. Um, if you wanted to, you could take a uh, regional rail or take a bus and get off right next to the park, pretty much. Right, yeah. And so it's a very accessible park. And the same goes for 
a lot of the parks in Philadelphia, whether it's Taconi, Pennypack, Cobbs Creek, um, Fairmount Park, Fairmount Park, East and West. And this is something that's a good segue, I think, into the next, into our first piece. Question is, how do you get people from the city who aren't used to doing it, or aren't right next door, or aren't already like bird people or snake people or bug people or something or plant people to say, hey, you know what, I will you know, take the bus or I will go walk or ride my bike, whatever, over there to that park that's right there. Um, and so the, the first piece we're going to do uh, is an interview with um, someone from the Friends Group for Nairobi National Park in Kenya. This is something Tony, when we were planning out the season, Tony was talking about, like, I think leopards in Nairobi or something like that. Um, and that led me to this friends group. And first thought was like, I'm used to friends groups in Philadelphia. You know? yeah, the park, I mean, the Friends of Wissahiggin is phenomenal. They're over 100 years old. They have a paid staff. They have their own vehicles. We work hand in hand with them. I'm close friends with their their project coordinator. Uh, we do a lot of stuff together. Um, you know, they're they're wonderful people. So yeah, friends groups are. And I just, I, and maybe this is sort of first world chauvinism, or um, I just hadn't expected to find a professional, well developed friends group in Kenya. And it's awesome. Um, their website's great, they're doing great stuff. Uh, and we're going to listen right now to our discussion about Nairobi National Park, some of its challenges, and some of the work of the friends group. So my name is Akshay Vishwanath, and I serve uh, as the vice chairman on the board of Friends of Nairobi National Park. Okay, so actually Nairobi National Park is quite a gem uh, for Nairobi City. It's one of the few wildlife, uh, few national parks in the world that actually contains uh, megafauna that are free to roam around. The, the park is not is fenced on three sides, the northern, eastern, and western boundaries, but it's open on the southern end. So animals can freely migrate in and out into the dispersal areas. So that's one reason why the, the Nairobi National Park is, is, is quite a, a unique um, thing for Nairobi City. But also it, it contains such a diversity of uh, sort of landscapes and assemblages of flora and fauna related to that. So you have a sort of tropical forests uh, sort of in the northern and western parts of the park. Um, some parts of the park are just your, your pure grassland savannas. There are lots of uh, water courses and rivers flowing through the park. So you have sort of riparian vegetation as well. Um, there are lots of like sort of hills and uh, rocky outcrops as well. So it's quite a mix of, uh, of landscapes uh, within a small area. The, the national park itself is only about 120 square kilometers. So within that, you have this quite a diversity of landscape and fauna and associated flora as well. So how accessible is it for people from Nairobi? Is it the kind of thing where you can take a bus there or, or drive and park at a parking lot really easily and then get out and walk? Is it harder to get into? Well, most national parks in, in Kenya, say for perhaps two or three, uh, you can't walk in the national park simply because of the, the nature of the, the wildlife in it, uh, predators and larger herbivores like elephants and um, buffalo and, and the like and rhino. So most parks, uh, you can't walk in them. You have to drive through. And there are sort of designated tracks on which people can drive around looking for the wildlife. Now, in terms of accessibility, the Nairobi National Park is actually within the city limits. And it's the main gate is actually only about uh, 12 kilometers or so from uh, the, the center of Nairobi. 
So getting there either by public means or driving there is incredibly easy. The challenge I think we face is precisely that because entering the park, one requires a vehicle. And of course, the vast majority of Nairobi residents don't own cars. So that's really the challenge we have in terms of getting visitors into the park in that it's almost exclusively to car owners or those who are in a position to pay for either a hired vehicle or can carpool. Uh, this is sort of a big topic, but um, what are some of the, the challenges of having um, a park like this right next to a, a very large city? Mm. Well, there are actually a number of challenges and, you know, these can be classified into various categories. So one category, for example, is pollution. So you have multiple uh, impacts uh, from pollution. One is simply because Nairobi doesn't have a very stringent um, garbage management system and littering is quite a problem in the city. So often just, you know, gusts of wind blow in trash, you know, paper bags, plastic bottles from uh, places outside the park, you know, residential areas, uh, industrial or commercial areas into the park. So there are parts of the park that where you drive through and you can find, you know, um, a, a plastic bag snagged onto a bush or something like that, or, you know, a, a, a empty plastic bottle, you know, lying by the side of the road. So you have pollution to that extent, but you also have pollution because Nairobi is sort of you know, all the industrial areas and commercial and residential areas of Nairobi um, right next to the park means there's, especially from industry, you have emission of, you know, toxic, uh, nox- noxious gases. Um, sometimes there's, you know, chemical uh, waste that f- find their way into water courses that then go through the park. Um, you also have from some of the residential areas where, um there hasn't been proper supervision or planning where uh, unscrupulous developers allow some of this the sewage coming out of those developments to flow into the park rather than into the, the sewerage system. You have pollution uh, impacts on that level as well. Then you, it's it's also just visitor behavior. Uh, a lot of people driving through the parks um, clearly uh, either don't care or are not uh, completely aware of what impact garbage has on wildlife. So you'll have someone driving through and chucking an empty bottle out their window as they're driving through. Unfortunately, that does happen. Uh, it's it's not, I would say, a, a, a sort of chronic problem. It's You wouldn't drive through a park and find waste everywhere. So, you know, please don't misunderstand me there. But it is certainly an, an issue where, you know, pollution from outside of the park boundaries, but even visitors inside, there is a, there is a pollution problem to that extent. Um, other, you know, impacts we have is in terms of visitor behavior themselves. So obviously there are certain species of wildlife within the park which are more popular than others, you know, case in point being the rhinos and lions. So often you have people when they spot a lion or something, you'll have, uh, you know, 30, 40 cars sort of trying to surround and get the best view of the lion wherever it is. Uh, so there's sort of like the the animal harassment that that comes out of that, especially if people are not uh, particularly aware or concerned about you know how close they get to the animal, uh, you know the crowding around it if there are several cars, etc. There's there's a bit of that, um, but generally, again, you know the fact that the, the the national park is within the city means there's huge uh, development pressure on the park. Um, in terms of a, you know, the surrounding landscapes all sort of getting built up very quickly, uh, but you also have the the fact now that now you know Nairobi essentially is not a very well planned city, so any infrastructure upgrading that requires to be uh, required that is required, um, often what happens is we find that because 
the choice is either you have to sort of displace or uh, you know um, demolish already built up structures around the park or the alternative is sort of route some of that infrastructure through the park and there's a huge temptation we see that to do that uh, especially in the recent years so we do have threats of uh, a highway going through uh, certain sections of a park of the park we have a threat of a upgraded railway system going through the park so these are the additional development pressures that now nairobi is, nairobi national park is facing um in terms of i think generally as a point is is something i referred to earlier referred to earlier i think one of the problems or challenges we have rather with sort of urban development and nature if i can put it that way is that we we have this very sharp distinction about this is what development is and this is what nature protection or nature conservation should be and we often have a very black and white opinion about it uh and in some cases that that's as it should be but in a lot of cases i think we miss out opportunities for good conservation and good development outcomes simply because we can't we haven't got creative creative enough and we're not able to transcend this black and white divide where we can actually sort of merge the two and have uh, an area that's so well planned out and so well managed that it has it has very good biodiversity and conservation outcomes as well as well as very good development outcomes and such that you know development is then carried out or executed in a way that as i said adds value to that nature uh, rather than destroying it so so some of the themes we'll touch on real quick i mean i want to talk a little bit about this accessibility question i think with the friends of the of Nairobi national park as we were talking about that it's you know, I first, part of me was like, oh, I wonder if people walk out and go check out the park, even if they can't, you know, if it, it, you know, Nairobi is a, a large city with a lot of, of, a lot of everything, but, a, you know, a lot of people living there who don't, can't, can't own car, who don't own cars, right? And might not be able to afford to rent a car. Uh, and that's one thing if you're in a park like the Wissahickon, where you can just walk around and ride your bike. However, as we were just listening to, um, in Nairobi National Park, you can't just go for a hike. You have to be in a vehicle, or you might get, I mean, I don't know, dramatize this, but, like, really, you could get killed by the animals there. They have buffalo, they have lions, they have leopards, they have just, you know, a lot of large, maybe they have giraffes, they have rhinos. Uh, and so these are all things that are, are awesome to check out, awesome to see, but it isn't, so it isn't like people can just, like, walk right into the park and go for a hike on the trails. So it's an interesting challenge how you can connect people who live in a city and are, want to go to that park right next door but just can't quite get there because of their vehicle. But it also puts, for me, like sort of the idea of a wild park into an interesting context where in Philadelphia, wild means white-tailed deer, and if a bear makes it into the city, it makes the news. The idea of like wild meaning leopards and lions and and giraffes sort of blew my mind. We talked a little bit in that discussion about pressures on parks, which I think are universal. Whether it's like road projects that eat away at the park, you know, park is the tempting place to um, to build on. If you're looking around a city and you 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 can swing a few political favors, or if you're a public official who wants to. I mean, in the most charitable interpretation, really wants to get that transportation project done or that hospital expansion done, if I think of something recent in Philadelphia. 
But, you know, a non-charitable interpretation might be, hey, economic activity, like, might get you elected and enrich your friends. You know, in Philadelphia, we had a situation, uh, do you remember this, with Fox Chase trying to expand? Yeah. It was the Burl Home Park, right? So Burl Home is what? It is a, like a manicured kind of, there's a few areas of, like, kind of woodsy natural lands, but it's a manicured, like... Typical like recreation park, ball feet. There's like I think okay, there's... and this is the northeast. Yeah, northeast Philly. Okay, so so even today, like even in Philadelphia, there are pressures on parklands where someone wants to develop something, expand something, looks at that park and says, you know what, that'd be a neat spot. And so it takes some, in this case, court intervention and you know active work on the part of people who love the park to fight off the development. So the next one we're going to talk about is a park that I grew to love. So, so in Buenos Aires in uh, 1999, I lived there, and I taught English and was just sort of kicking around after college, sort of making a little money while living abroad kind of thing. Back then I ran. I was a jogger, runner. And I sort of realized in my wanderings that, hey, there's this park right next to the city, or on the edge of the city, not too far from where I live. So I would go run down and go running in the park. And it was awesome. In retrospect... It reminds me a lot of the John Hines Wildlife National Refuge in Philadelphia, where it is a estuary park, basically. Um, and I would go running, and one of the things that, that just I loved about this place was the black and white tegus. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you have tegus where you are. If you're listening to this in Africa or Southeast Asia, uh, Australia, you might be familiar with having monitor lizards around where you are. Tegus are kind of like the South American equivalent. These would be four foot, five foot, uh, hefty looking lizards that just walk around eating small vertebrates, eating eggs. Not sure how much vegetation they have in their diet, but they can get pretty hefty. And if you're out there in the morning when they're sunning themselves, you can see a lot of them. And so for a reptile and amphibian guy like me, that was awesome. Um, they're also, you know, all kinds of interesting um, South American aquatic mammals that um, we don't have up here. And so. Buenos Aires, for those who don't know it, is not right on the ocean, but on uh, an estuary called the Rio de la Plata. And in that way, again, is similar to Philadelphia's positioning on a large estuary going into the ocean. So we're going to listen now to my interview with Cora Rimaldi. Cora is just the, the person who manages the website, really, <laughs> um, but also an avid birder, avid naturalist, and great correspondent. Cora has just been a lot of fun. To, I'll say this. Everybody, I love all our correspondents. I love our interviewees. But partly because I'm so sentimentally attached to this place. Um, and Cora has been just so helpful in, in reconnecting with it. Um, so check out this discussion of the Costanerasor Ecological Reserve. I am Cora Rimoldi. And I run a website uh, that is reservacostanera.com.ar. And the idea is to show people and to keep people updated as uh, for they can see uh, when they visit Costanera Sur. I belong to the Coarex. Coarex is a club of birders and it belongs to Aves Argentinas. This group is uh, very heterogeneous. There may be people roaming uh, or participating in Aves Argentina in Aves Argentinas, or there may be people coming from other parts that don't belong to the group exactly. Uh, We gather on Saturdays 
at 8 o'clock at one of the entrances of the reserve at the Amonte entrance. And there we decide what route we are going to do, what we are going to see first. If we have previous information of something that has already been seen, we go to spot to see whether it is, whether it is or not. This uh, reserve is in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It covers an area of uh, 350 hectares. I think, if I'm not mistaken, somewhat of 900 acres. Uh, this is a piece of land that was man-made, uh, was built in the late 70s. What we can see is a great biodiversity. We specialize or we focus on, on birds, but in fact we also uh, take notes of everything we can find, either plants or insects or mammals or reptiles or whatever, and see the changes of the reserve uh, in general. We study only this piece of land, this re reserve. Uh, that is to say, this is not about all birds of Argentina. It is not about all birds or all insects of Argentina. This is especially targeted to this piece of land that is Reserva Costanera. Okay. How many bird species have you seen there? Up to the moment, there are more or less 320 or 30. But in fact, what we have now, let's say 250, I would say the, the, the core of birds we have now is 250. And um, what kind of habitat do you find in the reserve? Well, now you, you can see the ponds and uh, you have a grassland, you have grassland. Uh, the main problem is that uh, there were three ponds previously. Uh, but there was a severe drought in 2008 and the ponds got dried. And uh, three years ago, the city council, this reserve belongs to the city council, decided to refill the ponds with water pumps from the river. And so now there is one pond that has already been uh, refilled and we can find most of the aquatic birds that have been lost uh, because of this uh, drought. What are species of birds that, that might be the reason people come there? Are there particular species that birders in Argentina and Buenos Aires get particularly excited about that they can see at the reserve? Well, sometimes, for instance, last, last year, yes, last year there was the least grebe. The least grebe is not found in the reserve. This uh, distribution area does not correspond to Buenos Aires. And this bird came and stayed for two months and a half. And so uh, birders uh, went there to see this grebe. Generally, we can have the visit of some birds that are not common here. And so uh, through the site and uh, now internet is a very good tool to learn about this, people know that the bird is here and they come. Sometimes people come from Uruguay too. They say Uruguay is our country that is a, 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 a neighbor country. And they come to see the bird because it is not common. Uh, th this is uh, the time uh, where, when we have the migrations. We have two main migrations now. The boreal, the, the, the ones of 
coming from the northern hemisphere that have already bred in the northern hemisphere and now come here to spend to spend summer and the the one that comes uh, from the north of south america and come here i mean come to the south to breed and so uh, lots of uh, these uh, swallows and martins, we, we've got the grey-breasted martin and, for instance, the grey-breasted martin nests in uh, reusing Rufus horneros nests. That is to say, the martin does not build a nest but reuses a hornero nest. So whenever you see a hornero nest, you pay attention to see if there is a martin in there. Yes, this is, a, this is one of the things we do. This is just not to go and see what you can find, but you look for things. We, know, we now know that these birds, or for instance, woodpecker holes, we know lots of birds then reuse these holes to nest. So then when you spot one, so be careful, stay uh, a bit to see if there is some movement, a bird going in or out or uh, carrying material and so you know, well, there you can see, uh, for instance, a strict flycatcher that also come, comes from the north, north of uh, South America to breed and it breeds in the reserve. Some birds do not breed in the reserve exactly, but they come to the south. Some others do breed here. And uh, so we, we pay attention to all these, um, these factors to find birds and then to follow these, uh, these families. One feels uh, proud that this reserve is watched from outside. Perhaps we, Porteños, do not appreciate this reserve in uh, the way we should. Yes, yes, yes. You know, they I, and they are astonished to see such uh, biodiversity in a, a place at walking distance from downtown. And uh, so th uh, this is what made me think that this place is beautiful and is wonderful. What is a tegu and, and where do you see them? Well, uh, this is the time to see tegus. Tegus are, um, uh, you can find tegus basking in the sun on, at the edges of the roads and they do nothing. They are completely inoffensive. And I would say that when, whenever they feel threatened, they escape and hide in the vegetation and <laughs> no longer seen. Sometimes you can see them cross the path the, and, 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 uh, in the distance, you say you are walking, and in the distance you can see something that is crossing the the path, and, and that is a tegu, or it may be a Brazilian guinea pig. Of course, differences in in size, uh, you do realize <laughs> immediately uh, which of the two uh, is. And something that is very funny in tegus is that they keep sticking their tongues out. And this is to smell. They smell through the tongue and not through the nose. <laughs> and so you can see them like uh, licking the air, yes? Uh, they, they stick their tongues out, licking the air, and what they are doing, in fact, they are smelling, uh, perhaps looking for food. Uh, and it's quite interesting to, to survey what animals, either birds or whatever, you can find in a city. It is quite interesting to see uh, last year, or no, the year before last, 
the city council decided to survey all the birds in the city. Uh, this is a, the, the city was divided in areas and groups of birders uh, helped in the, in the census. I mean, this was the first time it was done, and this gave an idea of what you can find in the city, because sometimes you walk in a city and you don't realize what is happening above you. Yes, it seems that there is no life, and in fact, there is life. Welcome back after listening to that. One thing that I want to talk, I want to sort of hook Tony on, is the discussion of the history of the place. So this is a, a reserve that wasn't like old natural land that was protected, but was filled in land, um, estuary next to the city that had been purposed for one thing. And then that sort of industrial purpose fell through. The plants and animals have colonized it and made it a really wonderful place. And I think that that sort of status is a fun thing to think about for urban and I'll put wild in quotation marks now, like wild, quote-unquote, wild parks. Um, and uh, I've, I've, I think I said this once in a podcast before, and it's something that's like stuck in my own head, that really even the wild areas in cities are post-industrial landscapes. They're industries that we don't do anymore. You know, that, that in Philadelphia, we don't power factories by water mills anymore, and we don't get fuel for cooking or materials for building by cut chopping down trees but the Wissahickon was probably logged Tony you might know this better than I do logged a few times over in its history and then I'm sure you had like mills all up and down the creek right uh, yeah absolutely you can still see their mill races and some of the foundations I think it you know you can have interesting discussions about how this should modify what we think of as wild you know as people like me and Tony also like to check out vacant lots that are overgrown or old, like even in parts of Philadelphia, let's say old Superfund sites that are like overgrown and have now interesting animals hanging around them. That wild doesn't mean necessarily preserving something, but uh, taking advantage of what uh, a place can become if you stop using it for its industrial purpose. Any thoughts? Just because it's not hardscapes doesn't mean it's not just as impacted by, you know, it's it's elements of the earth rearranged, you know, just because it's not a skyscraper doesn't mean, you know, just because it's green doesn't mean it's not human altered. I mean, here, like, if we'd been here in the year 1750 or, like, even 1800, what would, what would this look like? It probably would have been logged by then. Yeah. I'd say and, a couple times. Yeah. And you would have had mills up and down. You would have, yeah. had, you would have had, like, wagon traffic going to the mills. If you look at pictures... Like of the park system, like really old pictures, hundred some years ago. There's no trees in them. Yeah, you know it's crazy. So I think that uh, even when you're in the place like the Wissahickon and you can feel like you're you've been transported back in time, <laughs> um, the reality is no, you're not transported back. You maybe you're transported back in time, like 800 years or something like that. But even then, like your trees are different. I mean, it, it, especially once you learn how to read a landscape, you see what is post-industrial about it. You know, we can get a lot of the advantages of wild in terms of contact with plants and animals, even in the reclaimed space. So we're going to wind up listening to Cora do a little bird walk in the Cosonera Sur. Hi, this is Cora. 
a Reserva Ecológica Costanera Sur. I am with a group of birders and we are about to begin the bird walk at Costanera. Now I am at the northern side of the of the reserve and I've got a full view of the pond and first we'll see some of the water birds we have here. A family of common gallinul, one, two, three, four chicks. This is breeding time here, so we'll find lots of uh, families. Another family of red fronted coot with three chicks. What jacanas walking on the floating vegetation. Let's see how many. One, two, three. Now, here in clear water, let's see what we have. Ah, more chicks, but already grown. Of a red-fronted coot. They are white tufted creed diving into water. A silver teal, a, a pair of silver teals. Three rosy billed pochards are landing on water too. Yes, one, two, three, two males and a female. Up in the sky, a great egret is flying by. We are in an inner road path inside the reserve. This is a very beautiful place, we call it La Selvita. Lots of trees. And let's see what we can hear now. Over there on a tree trunk, a Rufus Hornero. That is the red-eyed vireo. We are walking at the edge of a canal, but we can't see if there is something in the water now. Uh, white brown swallows flying above us. So this is this bididi, bididi, that is the red-eyed video. There are lots of individuals and they like singing.
I think especially with birding, you can convey a lot of the sense of a place with the audio, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, I also just like to convey the sense of, like, I know this is obvious for someone like Tony, but if you're a naturalist in your place, in your country, you haven't traveled much, um, it's fun to know that they're, that the people looking at the birds... Or, you know, if you're looking at, if you're looking for, for flowers, if you're looking at butterflies, whatever, they're doing the same kind of thing you are. It's like, this sounded just like bird walks that I've recorded mm-hmm. and that you've been on a billion times, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's literally what I do for a living and, and, and a hobby. You recognize some of the species? That you mentioned? Yeah. All of them. Yeah. But, yeah, but I can recognize some of the vocalizations as well from being down that part of the world. I've been in southern Brazil, so there's a fair amount of overlap between. I would say so, yeah. yeah. And water birds tend to be, you know, some of the water birds, as you mentioned, live here. Like purple gallinules live in the southeast. Okay. So water birds tend to be um, very widely distributed. Yeah, once I've been in Brazil, times I've been in Argentina, is the is you end up looking at birds and thinking, that looks a hell of a lot like a robin. <laughs> or yeah. that looks a hell of a lot like our woodpeckers. And to an extent that you definitely don't have with reptiles and amphibians, you're looking at closely related species or species in the same genera as the ones you're used to back home yeah for instance um the rufus collar sparrow sure is in the genus um zona trichia and one of the most ubiquitous sparrows in the northeast in the winter would be the white throat sparrow it's also closely related to the white crown sparrow which is very common throughout the country in the winter in certain places and you know, so that, that's pretty cool. Um, they mentioned the Rufus belly thrush, which is a turtus. Turtuses are all over the world. Uh, our robin is a turtus. The blackbird in England and Europe yeah. um, is, is turtus. So, um, and it's interesting because that's the national bird of Brazil. And you would think, you know, a country that has hyacinths, macaws, and, and harpy eagles, you know, that they chose a bird that lives amongst people and it's pretty understated because it's even less colorful than a robin. A robin's pretty colorful. I mean, it's pretty bold, brick red and slate gray in yeah. the back. Uh, big, but this is like an understated. It's almost like looking at a, a robin. washed out robin, yeah. Yeah, through like wax paper or something. But they chose it because it lives amongst people and has a beautiful song. Um, and, they, and the people chose it. But while the national bird of Argentina that is the Rufus, Horn, Rufus Hornero, which is a bird only lives in the that family of birds only lives in Central South America. The okay. Funerids, the oven birds. We have an oven bird here. The different oven birds. They make clay. They make nests that are kind of like look like a clay oven. And and the Orpheus hornero especially does is really big bowling ball size clay nest um, with an, like a spiral, like a curved entrance, so it would you know prevent like toucans or snakes or whatever from getting in there. Hmm. Um, but they chose it because there was a socialist regime. In Argentina, apparently, at one point, and they wanted that bird to like because they had a good work ethic. <laughs> so, but yeah, they, you know, it's, it's cool the, the parallels. But of course, there's also things that we don't have, you know, there, of course. But it's it's pretty awesome. Well, that was our look at wild parks next door. You know, going from park where you can in, in Nairobi where you can check out giraffes and lions and and rhinos and buffalo. When I say buffalo, I mean the African buffalo, not 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 our American bison. To the Wissahickon, you know, sort of some an old logged hillside ravine of a of a park with a a beat up stream in the middle that still does pretty well. Um, I gotta say though, the way you're describing it, if you came here, I mean, 
it looks like the mountains. Yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And, like, the stream is, like, I mean, people love swimming in it, and it doesn't look beat up. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, and I think, and I'll I'll retreat a little bit and say that's kind of my point, is that you can have the experience, you can have a lot of the species, even in a place that has a history. I'm going to make a statement here where I bet you Wissahickon is more probably visually stunning than either of the two parks we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say the Coast Narasaur, you've been to Heinz. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's fascinating. It's flat, and it's, you know, it's a little bit of woods and a lot of aquatic vegetation. Nairobi National Park, you're pulled up. It really just looks like, you know, plains with roads and whatnot. And you can see the skyline in the background with giraffes. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think those are the pictures. The lion with the skyline. This is this is the kind of thing that you know we saw with the Rocky Mountain Arsenal near Denver, where you've got the you could have like actually we're looking at a picture right now, great parallel where you could have American bison with the Denver skyline in the background. We're just looking at pictures of like African buffalo <laughs> with the skyline in the background. And then we're now we're looking at pictures of the Higgin and you know there's a couple like on a you know on a rock bluff. In fall color, you know, there's waterfalls, there's... You can really lose yourself here. I mean, it looks, you know, it's stunning. So, um, hey, podcast listeners, um, wherever you are, please go into your podcasting platform and make sure to rate our podcast. Tell people you know how much you love the podcast, and they should listen to it, too. You can talk, tell them on the phone, you can text them, you can snap them, you can, you can slip them a note, whatever it takes. Uh, let them know. We said before, um, you listened to this podcast just now. How would you improve it? Um, what did you like about it? What might you do differently? Uh, so please send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. Hit us up on Facebook. Uh, a lot of ways you can get in touch with us and give us some feedback. Let us know what we can improve. Let us know what you like. And with that, we'll talk to you soon. And so one more thing. You know, we're always looking for more content from you guys. If you are checking out some interesting urban wildlife where you are, if you are in your park, your wild park, next to your city or in your city, you know, record a little clip on your phone, uh, a little voice note, send it over to us, uh, and we would love to put that on our next podcast. So with that, thanks a lot for listening. Cheers.